Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Bruce Kerber on February 15, 2022. Bruce was a student of Austrian economics at Auburn University shortly after the Ludwig von Mises Institute was established. In 2004, he had a dream of an economic model that he called the divine economy model. From this model, he formulated the theory for the divine economy based on the teachings of the Baha'i Faith. He's written a number of books expounding on the various aspects of the model. We talk about the divine economy model and theory in the interview. I started the interview by asking Bruce where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My grandmother was my spiritual mother. She was from a Catholic background, and then she converted to Unity, which is a non-denominational Christian church. And she would talk to me about universal love and the oneness of religion. And you grew up with this influence? through? Not really. My parents never belonged to any churches because one, my father was Protestant, my mother was Catholic. Pittsburgh is what at that point was very an ethnic-centric society. So they were turned off by the, the disunity revolving around religion. So they never asked us to go to church because they never belonged to any church. And then it wasn't until I was in my teens that I really started listening to my grandmother. I'm not sure at what age I was when she converted, probably uh, 12 years old or something like that. She was very dedicated. And when I was in my teens, she started influencing me when I would listen to what she had to say. Did you start participating with the Unity Church? I did actually go with my grandmother a couple times, yes. Mm -hmm. So what was your spiritual journey that led you to the Baha'i faith? Well, when I was 19, I attended a Seals and Crofts concert. Uh, Seals and Crofts were a very popular music group in those days, in the 70s. So one reason that I was attracted to Seals and Crofts was because Jim Seals was married to Ruby Seals. It was an interracial marriage that was kind of a unique thing thing I had never really thought about or seen prior to becoming familiar with their music. And then I, I went to the concert, and after the concert, they talked about their faith. Then a couple years later, I visited a Baha'i club information table at Penn State University. I looked at this list of information about Baha'i beliefs, and it was like a checklist of what I believed. As I'm processing this, something comes up out of the back of my mind. There came this question, are Seals and Crofts Baha'is? And the answer was a resounding yes. So I dove in deeply and fell in love. What were some of those checklist items that you saw that you said you believed? Well, the, the oneness of God, that there's one God, the oneness of religion, like I said, my grandmother taught me that the oneness of mankind, I already had kind of recognized that. I have a twin sister, so the equality of men and women, universal peace. I was really enthusiastic about peace. Essential harmony of science, religion, that whole list of uh, what a lot of the principles of the faith. 
I believed in every one of them. Bruce, I understand that you got your master's degree focusing on Austrian economics. Now, why Austrian economics? Well, I was finishing a master's degree in horticulture at Auburn University and was hoping to work internationally. At a luncheon that was sponsored by the local spiritual assembly of State College, they sponsored this luncheon to bring attention to the persecutions of the Baha'is in Iran. And at that luncheon, I sat next to a professor who had worked internationally, and he invited me to be his graduate student in agricultural economics. A couple years earlier, Auburn had been selected to be the home of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, making it the world center for Austrian economics. And my very first economics class was taught by an Austrian economist, and I became connected to the Mises Institute from then on. Austrian economics recognizes that humans are subjective, that because of that, the correct scientific methodology for economics is subjectivism. Subjectivism, what exactly is that? A recognition was ancient, dates all the way back to Aristotle, that humans make all their valuations and their choices subjectively. That is really, really important if you're trying to study human action, and economics is a part of the study of human action. There's really a, a major break in economics, which is why Austrian economics is unique and so important, is because the other approaches to economics, they lean towards what's called empiricism which is basically the scientific method that works for the natural sciences like physics. You know, gravity is going to pull this ball to the ground based on the laws of gravity, and you can predict every millimeter of travel. It's just easy to do that. You can use that kind of methodology in the natural sciences. But humans are not like that. We're not atoms. We make our choices. We change our minds. We have spiritual interests. We're not strictly bound by the laws of nature because we can go beyond that. We can actually break the laws of nature. That's why subjectivism is the correct methodology because it, it reflects how humans actually value things, make choices. Where is Austrian economics practiced? At the time I learned about it, there was just small groups of people that were knowledgeable about Austrian economics. But again, because Mises Institute was in Auburn, that was where probably the most activity on Austrian economics was taking place. But now it's primarily because of the Mises Institute. They've developed training, ways of helping people learn about it. And so there's a lot of Austrian economists around, which is helping because it basically will kind of redirect economic science in the proper direction. Ludwig von Mises originally was from Vienna. The Nazis chased him out of Europe. He came to America, and that's how it shifted to America. He passed away in 1973. Then a board of regent member at Auburn University was a follower of Mises, and he helped bring the Mises Institute to Alabama, to Auburn, Alabama. That was in 1983. You've developed a theory called the divine economy. And I understand that this theory was stimulated by a dream you had in 2004. Can you describe yes. for us the dream that led to the divine economy? 
I can describe how it happened. To describe it, it's, I can try to do that. It's better to have a visual of that, but I'll, I'll do my best on that. I am an Austrian economist, but my area of specialization is the divine economy theory. And because of this unique experience, I am the author and originator of the divine economy theory and the divine economy model. It's not unrelated to the fact that I am a Baha'i. I became a Baha'i in 1977, and I became an Austrian economist in 1984. But one of the main beliefs of Baha'is is the essential harmony of science and religion. So there's a lot of beautiful connections within the writings, the literature of Austrian economics, because it's Austrian economics is part of the tradition of classical liberalism, which goes back to the Spanish scholastics, Thomas Aquinas, all these great thinkers that all had religious connections or pursuits that led them to discover certain economic truths. Anyway, so I was within that tradition, and I knew there was this essential harmony of science religion. And when I would read, I would always find those parallels. But it really was not as clear, because your person could still be an Austrian economist and be an atheist. In the pursuit of this, of struggling, wrestling with these ideas of essential harmony in science religion, also, I would see the economics in the scriptures, too. So wrestling with that, then one night in 2004, I had a dream. In the middle of the night, I wrote down what I saw in the dream. And then when I woke up the next morning, I knew I had dreamt. So I looked at the note that I had written on that previous night. And turns out on the note, it wasn't words, it was an image. And when I saw the image, I knew it was a significant contribution to economics. So then I began to apply my technical training as an Austrian economist. Then over the next seven years, I developed the model and researched the literature and wrote the four core books about the divine economy theory. And I did most of my research and writing during the Baha'i Fast each year. So what is the Baha'i Fast? It's a period of 19 days. It's the last month of the Baha'i year. And Baha'is fast from sunrise to sunset. That's a time of spiritual reflection and growth, learning about yourself, learning about what you would call reality, and trying to then transform as a result of that. Bruce, you're the author of a number of books elaborating on this theory of divine economy. And the first book is called More Than Laissez-Faire, a macroeconomic textbook alternative. So describe for us what this book is describing for the reader. Well, more than laissez-faire makes it clear that the economy is the providence of God. But it does this scientifically using deductive logic. The divine economy can be understood by seeing how the human spirit, how transformation how law and how order operate together. And this describes the macroeconomy. Those were the four petals of the flower that appeared to me in the dream. The center was the divine economy, and then north and south, the southern part was human spirit, the northern petal was transformation, the western petal was law, and the eastern petal was order. So that was the image that I saw. And that basically fully describes 
the economy and how it works. And then I just went in and described it in more detail scientifically using deduction. Would you like to read an excerpt from More Than Laissez-Faire so we can get sure. an idea? God is the creator of the economy as a human institution, and his design allows the fullest expression of human diversity. In the divine economy, there is decentralized planning to the nth degree, where N represents each individual or business entity that is actively interacting within the market process. The economy changes as the human race changes and yields its promised fruits conditionally, depending on whether the current state of affairs exists as either a hampered or an unhampered market. The state of affairs at any point in time reflects the spiritual maturity of mankind and the corresponding condition of the economy. As mankind as a whole matures, he increasingly cares for himself and for others. The economy always fully serves at the level it is capable of as an institution with divine potential. But unfortunately, it has historically been significantly constrained by human intervention. Like all institutions, the economy has the appearance of structure. Its structure in its pure form is the market, free from political intervention. The closer the economy is to a free market, the greater its capacity to be a full expression of a divine economy. Remember that there is interplay between the human actors and the market itself. There is a commingling of these two divine entities and both benefit from this dynamic process of discovery. Also, there is a transforming power in this divine encounter. This transforming power is perhaps the most essential element of the divine economy. There is a divine power, the power to transform the resources bestowed upon us into goods and services, and which then enables us to serve one another as a tribute to our loving creator. Bruce, the second book you wrote is called The Human Essence of Economics, and this is a micro-economic textbook alternative versus the first one being a macroeconomic textbook alternative. What is the difference in these two books? Well, in the second book, Human Essence of Economics, we look deep inside to find where value comes from. It turns out that all value comes from the appearance of the names and attributes of God. As you can imagine, knowing where value comes from is important in economics. For example, Entrepreneurs, who are the driving force of the economy, actively seek what is valued and find out how to deliver that value. And would you like to read an excerpt from The Human Essence of Economics? Sure. Why are there unnoticed opportunities? One reason, imperfect knowledge. For example, resource owners and consumers are often passive in the very dynamic economy. What unnoticed opportunities means is that there will necessarily be more efficient ways to coordinate transactions in the resource and product market. Whoever steps forward as an entrepreneur and bears the uncertainty inherent in the market will be the one who is in the position to capture these opportunities. Moment to moment, any market participant can become an entrepreneur or not, either now or later, 
or over and over again. And even though economic roles are multiple, yet still they are distinct. For instance, resource ownership and entrepreneurship are completely separate functions. Nevertheless, the same person may be an entrepreneur, a resource owner, and a capitalist, and yet still perform these functions independently. It is in the competitive market where the entrepreneur plays a critical role. Paradoxically, as it happens, the market process is competitive because it is entrepreneurial. Market information is acquired through the experience of market participation, and the entrepreneurial action taken in response to the changes that occur in the market data, assuming that the changes are detected. So it is, the prospective decisions of buyers and sellers at every step in the production process are subjected to this competitively alert scrutiny. And is that a good thing or what? This competitive scrutiny? Well, here's what it is. Entrepreneur is a technical economic term. The divine economy theory puts it in a different light, calling it the entrepreneurial spirit. How you understand that is human beings are seekers after truth. That's their nature. They're like a moth towards light. They seek knowledge. They seek truth. And entrepreneurs is no different than that. What they're doing is they're looking for these unnoticed opportunities. They're looking for how to make things better for themselves and for others. They're not doing it in isolation. Everyone's doing it to some degree or side by side, whatever. They're doing it together. So it is competitive in that sense, but it's not like competition in the natural world where the most competitive lion wins the prey, something like that. Because what competition in the market does is it makes things better for everyone. If there is competition in finding the best way to do things, then the outcome of that is doesn't cause any decrease in, or suffering. It causes the increase because it now makes things better. The competitive aspect of entrepreneurship, again, it's a natural expression of the human way of life, the way they think and act, but it also ends up serving mankind in the best way. Bruce, the third book you wrote is Ethical Economics for Today and Tomorrow, an ethical economics textbook. Tell us about this one. Okay. Well, we have to move into the age of maturity. We know that knowledge of the essential harmony of science and religion is a characteristic of the age of maturity. What that requires is the bridging of economics and ethics something unachieved scientifically until now with the divine economy theory. This third book, Ethical Economics for Today and Tomorrow, shows that ethics and economics are sister disciplines that require knowledge for them to be complements of each other, knowledge provided by the supreme ethicists. What do you mean by supreme ethicist? You would capitalize S and you would capitalize E, supreme ethicists. That would be a synonym to the prophets of God, the manifestations of God, the word of God made flesh, the one who comes in every age, the lawgiver, that provides access to the knowledge of that age. Give us some examples of who these folks are. When I'm talking about the supreme ethicists here, I'm talking about the 
Krishna, Moses, Buddha, Zoroaster, Muhammad, Jesus, the Bab, and Baha'u'llah. And the Bab and Baha'u'llah are who? In the Baha'i faith, there's a, a prophet founder whose name was the Bab. And then there's one whom God shall make manifest, who he was preparing the way for, and that's Baha'u'llah. These are the most recent manifestations of God. It's through their knowledge that we're able to realize what's needed to get past where we are now and to go into the future. And that's why the science of economics has to move past the old understanding of things. It doesn't only have to, it can. One of the really clear things is here is we have supreme ethicists who come, these manifestations of God, and they help us to understand. So one of the things they help us to understand is the essential harmony of science and religion. So like I said, one of the perplexing things that bothered me was that people who understood the correct methodology for economics, subjectivism, they were Austrian economists who were believed in subjectivism, but were atheists. You could be there if you want, but it's not going to be helpful for mankind to move forward if you keep them apart. The teachings of the Supreme Methodists for this day make it clear that science and religion are connected. They're sister disciplines. They complement each other. To understand, you need them both. So would you like to read an excerpt from Ethical Economics for today and tomorrow? Sure. Without the understanding given by the manifestations of God, economics halts too soon. Economics as a science has the right and responsibility to test ethics and religion. Testing, of course, is not the same as excluding. Divine economy theory recognizes that religious truth is revealed by the manifestations of God, who educate humankind about the will of God. Each time a manifestation of God comes, the cycle of science, religion, and civilization is energized. Even though ethics and religion are in unity, they are not exactly the same. For instance, the inherent dignity and nobility of the human being, created in his image, lays the foundation for the ethic that property rights should be upheld. But the use of one's property may not be moral if a person has not acquired to a sufficient degree the inherent dignity and nobility of being a human. There may be religious laws that address this. If not, or if these laws are not practiced, the ethics of allowing the learning process to occur is the one most compatible with the divine economy theory. Eventually, the use that is in accord with God's will, the moral one, will be chosen because it is ultimately the best means to attain the ends. In other words, the divine economy works at all levels and in all ways. Here is the list of 16 axioms of the ethics of the divine economy, which is a positive ethical theory that I have identified. One, humans carry their thoughts into the realm of action. Two, being a seeker after truth is part of the human operating system. Three, the definition of praxeology used in the divine economy theory is purposeful action by spiritual beings, and it is interwoven with ethics. Four, every human being decides what is best for himself, herself, 
And this decision is referred to as subjective rather than as selfish, a term which has too many biases associated with it. Number five, what catches the attention of human beings is the appearance of the names and attributes of God. Number six, the content of our actions is the conveyance of the names and attributes of God. Seven, humans are interested in the science and the art of existence. Eight, our human limit is the point where a higher kingdom is reached, one that is incomprehensible to the lower kingdom. Nine, the word of God extends our knowledge of spiritual concepts. Ten, the first and foremost ethic for the divine economy is trust in God. Eleven, the ethics between the macro and the micro level is seamless. Twelve, acquisition of virtues constitutes private property. Thirteen, human rights are property rights and property rights are human rights. 14. The price system serves as a language of the market economy, and intertemporal prices, example, interest rates, function the same as all the other prices emerging from voluntary exchange. 15. Production is a human creation, emulating God, the creator. 16. Pure entrepreneurship is discovery of something from nothing. Very interesting. And I guess in the book you go through and explain each one of those. Yes. And this is, again, The Ethical Economics for Today and Tomorrow by Bruce Kerber. Uh, go ahead, yeah. Bruce. One, one of the great Austrian economists that I met actually a couple times, his name was Murray Rothbard, and he wrote a book called The Ethics of Liberty. One of the things that he aspired for but he never achieved was to come up with or formulate or to discover a positive ethical theory. That's what these 16 steps, from understanding the divine economy theory, what a positive ethical theory would look like. And speaking of liberty, your fourth book is entitled Liberty and Justice of Economic Equilibrium, an economic justice textbook. Tell us about this book. So there was one strand of the divine economy model undeveloped, and that was the law-order strand. Nothing could be more important than law and order. The main reason for the chronic problems associated with bad laws and disorder is the lack of the appreciation of the lawgiver and of codified law. This book makes it clear that the covenant is a contract and that an ever-advancing civilization is one that is composed of contractual societies. So you refer to the covenant. What do you mean by that? Covenant is a promise. It's a contract. From the perspective of a Baha'i, there's a greater covenant and a lesser covenant. And the greater covenant is that God would never leave mankind to himself. In other words, he would always love him, always provide him with knowledge so that basically wouldn't exterminate himself because that's probably what he would do if he didn't get that blessing and grace from God. So that's the greater covenant, that God would always be there for humanity. Then there's the lesser covenant, and the lesser covenant is something that is that appears in every age with the supreme ethicist or the manifestation of God. There's a lesser covenant that comes with it, and that's what enables 
the divine civilization to emerge from that revelation that comes to that manifestation of God. But the problem is the lesser covenant has never been inviolable until now. And that's the beauty of this day. And that's the beauty of the Baha'i faith, because what happened is Baha'u'llah actually appointed Abdu'l-Baha, his son, Abdu'l-Baha, as the center of his covenant and put into place all the structure to maintain that into the future. Here's one of the beautiful things about it that never really could appear with certainty in prior times is Abdu'l-Baha is the interpreter of the writings of Baha'u'llah. So there's no one else, no other interpretation of the the writings of Baha'u'llah that can be regarded as authentic. So it preserves the unity of the Word of God. There's a lot of factors that make this day so powerful, like Baha'u'llah's writings in his own hand or with us. We have those in the Baha'i archives. The point is, the covenant is a contract, and the lesser covenant is a contract between the manifestation of God and his dispensation, and the period that is part of the development of the divine civilization that emerges from the word of God that he brings. That covenant is the lesser covenant, and this day it's inviolable, and that's what makes this day uh, the promised day when the kingdom of God can be established on earth. Bruce, would you like to read an excerpt from Liberty and Justice of Economic Equilibrium? Sure. Divine economy theory has a role to play in the spiritual, social, and intellectual development of individuals for many reasons. First of all, it is comprehensive of all disciplines from its beginning to its end. It is all about creating an environment of liberty and justice so that the flow of knowledge is always at its maximum. Abdu'l-Baha said, it is essential that scholars and the spiritually learned should undertake in all sincerity and purity of intent and for the sake of God alone to counsel and exhort the masses and clarify their vision with that calyrium which is knowledge. But human knowledge cannot ever ascend past the concept of time. It is bound to time. To gain knowledge beyond this realm requires an alpha and an omega. The knowledge given by the manifestations of God transcends time. Using the divine economy theory, it is possible to appreciate their contributions to the story of human evolution. At this stage of maturity, the Baha'is are learning to apply the teachings to achieve progress, and this could be taken as the very definition of Baha'i social and economic development. The revelation of Baha'u'llah can also be used to test the divine economy theory. In the human sciences, this is one of the great values of the manifestation of God for each day, to test the sciences and to inspire the sciences. The word of God given to us by Baha'u'llah is pure and vast. The covenant of God given us by Baha'u'llah is inviolable. These may seem like they are only important to religion, but lest we forget the seamlessness between science and religion, that would not be correct. What this purity and inviolability means is that all ego-driven interpretation and all ego-driven intervention are now abolished. Gone with them will be the social diseases that they cause. Over time, 
societies will vie with each other to eliminate the state, fully confident in the divine law and the divine order of Baha'u'llah. Bruce, your fifth book is Macro and Micro Economics Renewed, a comprehensive economic textbook alternative. So tell us about this one. Well, most educational requirements for economics include learning macroeconomics and microeconomics. But what good is that if the content is rotten? What is needed is a comprehensive alternative textbook on these two subjects so that humanity can live maturely in this age of maturity into which we are entering. And would you like to read an excerpt from Macro and Microeconomics Renewed? Sure. Since the flow of knowledge is the great force affecting the market process, it follows that anything that interferes with the flow of knowledge slows the process. This retarding of prosperity affects the divine economy at the macro level and also at the very personal micro level. Acts of intervention distort and disrupt the flow of knowledge. At the level of the individual, the intervention-induced distortions may cause a person to act greedily instead of with moderation, or it may cause a person to impatiently spend rather than wisely save. Do you see what I'm saying? The ills that we easily recognize as ills, and which have been incorrectly attributed to the economy, I just mentioned greed and excessive consumption, can now be correctly attributed to their true source, the distortions that come from the acts of the ego-driven interventionists. Intervention, acts imposed from outside the market process and that prevent the free flow of accurate information, it is this intervention that distorts and corrupts the microeconomy and the macroeconomy. Intervention is like a veil that prevents us from recognizing that the economy is divine. With this book, I have attempted and hopefully succeeded in lifting that veil. Even better, together let's work to tear asunder the veil of intervention by vehemently objecting to intervention at all levels and in all forms, so that the countenance of the divine economy can beam its glory. Finally, do not relinquish the responsibility of your own self, your human essence, to another, to someone else. The human essence of economics essentially is for each person to find their essence and to polish it as a gem, and in this way attain wealth and bring about prosperity. Bruce, can you clarify for me what is meant by intervention? It goes back to the idea of subjectivism. So humans are subjective. Another way it can be said, each human is a unique creation. Their life experiences are unique. So there's no way I can know what's best for you. I mean, I might think I do. If I was to come up to you and tell you what's best for you, chances are it'd be about zero chance it's correct. And then if I said, well, too bad, this is what's going to happen, you would object to that. So that's even one-on-one. -on -one. But now you go one-on-100 on million or one-on-7 on billion. Someone trying to say this is what mankind needs. There's no way that's possible. Intervention is the arrogance and the ignorance that would make someone think that they know what's best for others, rather than giving them the freedom to discover and to express their uniqueness and what they choose and what they value. 
intervention is the opposite of that. And the only way that anybody could do that is they're either very arrogant or they're ignorant, ignorant of the fact that they don't have that knowledge or arrogant. They don't have that knowledge, but they care less. They want the power that comes with imposing it on others. So intervention is that. It can be compared to interpretation. I think most people know that interpretation causes that kind of a problem. Why are there so many different sects of all the different religions? Because each one said, oh, well, this is the true understanding. Oh, no, this is the true understanding. They end up fighting with each other, and it, it causes disunity. What should be unifying becomes disunifying because of ego-driven interpretation. Well, that's the religion side. The science side is regarding economics, is that same kind of arrogance and ignorance. It manifests itself as interventionism, and it same kind of disruption causes disunity, causes injustice. Bruce, your sixth book is called Voluntary Theocracy, Divine Economy Theory. So what do you want the reader to understand when reading this book? Well, this is my magnum opus. It's the combination of all four books in the series. In other words, it covers macroeconomics, microeconomics, ethical economics, and economic justice. Is it summarizing the four books? All four books are placed into one book. And the foreword for this book is written by Dan Popov, who's a, a co-author of The Virtues Guide with Linda Cavill and Popov. Why did you choose the title Voluntary Theocracy? First of all, the word theocracy frightens probably everybody. <laughs> Because there's been claims for theocracy throughout the centuries, and they've always been oppressive at some point. Because there was no authorized interpreter, it was not possible. There's no way a, a theocracy could come about because whoever was formulating it was interpreting. It was their arbitrary thoughts. They weren't authorized to do that. The idea of theocracy is scary to most people who have thought about it, unless they're actually in a system that they think is a theocracy and they're loyal to it, but they would not like what's outside of that theocracy. Anyways, this theocracy is basically the order and the, the ruling of that order by God is kind of what the theocracy represents. But the difference here is it's voluntary instead of coercive. You know, theocracy, the way they've seen it in the past, is someone's determination of what it should look like and then forcing it on people. This one is voluntary theocracy. In other words, every human being voluntarily comes to appreciate and understand the order given to mankind. It recognizes that the manifestations of God bring that order to the world Say if I'm a Christian and I believe that the economy is divine, then I would do my best as an individual to put the teachings of Christ to work in my life. And I would do that voluntarily because that's what I believe. And the order that I would try to arrange my affairs on is the word of God of Christianity. So that would be a voluntary theocracy. That would be the case with anybody of any faith anywhere in the world. Instead of putting their trust in a secular approach, they would want to make sure that 
their faith is honored, that the teaching, the divine teachings are honored. The divine economy theory recognizes that there's harmony of science and religion, that people should put their trust in God. That brings about a lot of responsibility because you have to then investigate. You have to try to find the best expression of the will of God. It's a journey is what it is. So would you like to read an excerpt from Voluntary Theocracy? Sure. In contrast to laissez-faire, which implies a natural order, the divine economy implies a reality that expresses God's will. It takes form in each age in accordance with the laws and teachings given by the manifestation of God. It operates at all times in human civilization with an almost irresistible power through human choices and aspirations. Most certainly, the divine economy does not need intervention, which merely serves to diminish the effective communication of the divine economy and its justice. In other words, the equilibrium process tending towards rest naturally is manifest as a voluntary theocracy. It is these voluntary and ideal conditions that lead to the development of each individual by the organization of natural things, of human affairs, of education, the pursuit of knowledge, and the domination of spiritual principles over lesser instincts of humanity and the purveyance of justice throughout the world. Bruce, your most recent book is Divine Economy Model, How to Make Your Thoughts and Actions Powerful and Harmonious. Tell us about this book. The Divine Economy Model is a free book to anyone who wants a copy that provides a mental model of the economy. There is a power of comprehension that comes from visualization, and translating that visualization into purposeful action is what creates the transformation, transformation of you as an individual and of your surroundings. So how does one get a copy of the Divine Economy Model? Well, you could email me or you could go to my website. One word, divineeconomytheory.com is my website. If you go there, on the very first page there, the little box, you click that and you can get the free book. If you email me at divineeconomyconsulting at gmail.com, one word, divineeconomyconsulting at gmail.com, if you email me, I'll send it to you however you want to e-book or printed book, whatever. Bruce, would you like to read an excerpt from Divine Economy Model? Sure. Why is the Divine Economy Model important for you? Because it enhances your vision. Visualization is a key to the door of understanding, and keenness of understanding is due to the keenness of vision. That is what models offer. Of course, models have to be representative of reality, and these models of the divine economy theory fully appreciate our subjective nature and our spiritual powers. This is certainly an advancement in economic science. We never stop learning, and these models are not mere objects, but rather they are conceptual and dynamic. Every time you revisit these models, you will gain something new. That is one of the organic features of these models. 
compatibility with your learning process makes these models practical and enriching. What's the next step for you, Bruce, in this unfoldment of the divine economy? I just finished a brand new PDF. It's a PDF about where ideas come from. And it's called The Germination of the Divine Economy Theory. So that's free also. Again, I, I'll make that available to anybody who, who wants that. I'm trying to build a network of people who spread the knowledge of the divine economy theory. So that's what my mission is. I'm doing that inch by inch. And there's people all around the world who are interested in um, nurturing that. And see, the, the divine economy model book, which is free, what it does is it gives the macro model, the micro model, the ethical economics model, and the economic justice model. It doesn't have all the theory around it. It just shows you the model, and you get quite a bit of content of the principles and the theory from the models themselves. And then it tells them if you want more, you can go to the books themselves. But people don't have that. I mean, when you look around the world, there aren't models that are comprehensive, that are integrated, that recognize the subjective nature of humans, and recognize the, the spiritual nature of humans. That just doesn't exist. And to have it free to people anywhere, if they do open it up, they'll experience something they never thought was possible or that they never had a chance to see before. Yeah, so I'm going to your website as we speak, and I see there's these three steps. Of course, the title of it is Economics for the Spiritually Minded, and you have three steps here. See what the economy looks like, use that vision for growth, and attract others, attract grace. What is the purpose of these three steps? Right below that is the free book. This is connected to the, the stage of development of helping people learn about the divine economy theory that when I developed this book, the divine economy model. So, so it says, see what the economy looks like. That's what the book does. It actually shows people what it looks like. So most people, if you were going to say macroeconomy, microeconomy, ethical economics, economic justice, there's no visualization. They don't they have no idea what it looks like. So the model at least gives them something to get a feel for what it is. And then as they understand that, because the visualization is what leads to a keener understanding. And with that, then you can find out how to transform yourself and your surroundings and so that's where the vision of growth comes. And then attracting others, interacting grace, because first of all, knowledge is like light. If you have knowledge, people are attracted to it. And attracting grace, I think these three steps are integral to using the model to get people into the theory, because the theory is, uh, gives them a much deeper understanding. The model is, I think, key they can actually see it and then start to apply it. Well, Bruce, I want to thank you so much for taking this time to explain the divine economy theory and model, and the best of luck to you in spreading this word. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bruce Kerber, a liberal economist who created an economic model and theory called the divine economy, inspired by the teachings of the Baha'i faith. 
You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Abahai Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Thank you.
Wrong.